I'm Pippa Kelly. Welcome to the third series of Well I Know Now, in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. Since launching my podcast during our first lockdown last year, I've chatted to people living with dementia, people caring for loved ones, to artists, authors, broadcasters, cartoonists and actors representing, recording and charting the lives of those with the condition. I've spoken to the chief executives and founders of dementia organisations, big and small, and each and every one of my guests has taught me something new about the condition and how it affects us all, about myself, about life and what's important in it. We've mulled over what we know now that we didn't before dementia came into our lives. My mum lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. And were I to sum up one of the main things that I know now that I didn't this time last year, and what a strange, unsettling and isolating year it's been, it's the huge power of connections, of real skin-to-skin human connections, of bear hugs and whisper-soft touches, and what we mean to each other and give to each other just by being there. It's often the seemingly smallest things that matter most. It was the poet Sylvia Plath who wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this too. My guest today is the owner and director of two small care homes in Devon. Pottles Court, which has to have the best care home name ever, and Summer Court, both of which live by the philosophy of homely homes for life. When my guest and I talked, he told me in no uncertain terms that people who come to live in Pottles Court and Summer Court do just that. They arrive and move in. They're not admitted, a word more suited to hospitals. How very refreshing. In fact, George Coxon seems altogether refreshing. For a start, he's unusual in the care sector in that he came to it from the NHS. If people do make the transition, it's normally the other way around. He trained first as a mental health nurse and then as a specialist community psychiatric nurse before buying his first care home in 2005 while continuing to work in the NHS until 2012. Needless to say, he's making it his business to help bring about integration of the two services through his roles on various trusts, boards and networks. In a TED talk a couple of years ago, George asked his audience to think of words which for them conjured up the single most important element of care home life. Top of George's own list was the word kind, closely followed by keen, safe, fun, curiosity and fresh, from fresh ideas to that inviting fresh scent that we'd all like to greet us when we visit our mum in a care home, so often doesn't. To hear the list of words that inform George's attitude to care homes is to understand the man. For him, guarding his residents' fun is as important as guarding their safety. The final word on his list is time. Too often, says George, there's a polarity between busy care home staff and bored residents. For anyone listening who knew him as I did, I'm sure this will immediately bring to mind the late, great and very sorely missed Tim Lloyd Yates, founder of the charity Alive, whose inspirational approach to care homes was triggered by just the same observation. The pandemic has been nothing short of a catastrophe for so many care homes. For Pottles Court and Summer Court, 
where personal care is just one small part of everyone's lives and the emphasis is on fun, it was a huge blow. George told me the crucial factors for people living in his care homes are having things to look forward to, having time to reflect on the past, receiving and giving affection, and feeling useful. During the COVID crisis, they were denied them all. Days after the 17 people who lived there had been vaccinated, the virus struck Pottles Court. Everyone was confined to their bedrooms for 14 days. It was really grim, George says. When they wanted to get on the move, he doesn't like the term wandering, we had to usher them back into their rooms. It was very difficult. In the end, they lost four residents, all in their 90s. People were bunkered, George says. It felt punitive. We normally have a calm, easygoing atmosphere, and in many ways, when life was limited for safety reasons, that caused more harm. He admits that last year was challenging in terms of communication and documentation, and says the key to meeting those challenges is good teamwork. Teamwork, collaboration, the sharing of best practice among different sectors of health and care, and leading by example, like the heart of what George Coxon does. Not forgetting fun, of course. Care homes, he says, touch every base. I can unquestionably say with absolute sincerity that work in progressive, energised care homes provides a special kind of buzz and thrill to those associated with them. There is nothing like the satisfaction you get from life in a great care home as a resident, a worker or an owner. So George, down the line from Devon, a very, very warm welcome to Well, I know now. Well, fantastic! What a what a marvelous introduction, Piver. I'm so so I'm smiling, and then there was part of your introduction that did cause me to remember how difficult things have been. But uh, mm. but yes, what a marvelous introduction! Thank you very much, and it's lovely to be with you. It's good to talk. That final quote from you, actually, George, is a is a great endorsement of what the very best care homes have to offer. And um, as we emerge from this pandemic, which has taken such a a really ruthless toll on those living in care homes and their loved ones, families are understandably fearful of relatives moving into them. So there couldn't be a better time for you and I to chat about what a really, really good care home looks like. So can we start there? And can you describe to me your ideal care home? I mean, presumably, this is not a million miles away from your two. Well, I'd love to think so. And I genuinely believe we are, I often say it's a journey in relation to the work we do, and we're not there yet. And I suppose that's a kind of commitment to some of the things that you've already said about curiosity, about the concept of seeking ways to be better and making sure that we're constantly having an eye on the little things as well as the big things. And I think the little things, I mean, about making sure that the atmosphere and the culture and the kind of everyday life is full of those things that you've described about things to look forward to, the positive anticipation, making sure that people are having affection, making sure that people get the opportunity to have fun smile, laughter, do things that they enjoy and try things out that maybe they've never tried out. So moving into a care home, as you rightly point out, we don't admit people that people move in. It's a part of life's journey. Moving into a care home is moving into a a different chapter, a new chapter of a person's life. It's not a place to end your life necessarily. I mean, obviously, in the fullness of time, that will happen for us all. But obviously, a a step into a care home at the right time, and it's another point that I make regularly about don't leave it too late mm. um, and make sure you plan ahead and make sure you think about the things that are right for you and your loved ones. 
but making sure that when you move into a care home, you're moving into a time to learn new things, to try new things out, and to actually relax and do all the things that we attempt to do and we aspire to do in, in our care homes. So I think we try our very best to get it right. And, and I think the feedback that we get from families and others tends to vindicate our approach. Mm, what are the big challenges as the director of two care homes? I mean, what are the big difficulties? What are the leadership problems that you might struggle with? <laughs> well, I, I have to be honest here and say I know that, you know, we work with people who are all projects. You know, we're all projects, whether you live in a care home, whether you work in one, no one's the finished article. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all got things to learn. We've always got more to know. And I think that point about enthusiasm, which is very much one of my five key characteristics in how I see things, kindness being the first, you've mentioned that already, but the sort of keen, enthusiastic making sure that we have people that are, that have initiatives that can be proud of their work. And I think that's another really key characteristic of our work. But in terms of leadership challenges, it is something about making sure that we attract people, the right people, or people that want to try out the work and enjoy it and get the buzz and the thrill that you've mentioned already. And I think the challenges are the imperfect system. And unfortunately, you know, one of my missions really is to elevate the status of care work And that, you know, as you said, migrated really from a senior job in the NHS, of which I've had many. And now I am acting as a kind of bridge, really, to try and ensure that social care, very topical, of course, doesn't get forgotten and doesn't get missed out when there are conversations being had at the highest level about how we need to make sure that our system is joined up and that we recognise the expertise, the existing expertise that there is in residential care across the country and let's not forget even in England alone we've got more than 16,000 care Mm. homes looking after more than 400,000 people Mm. so it's a huge huge mm. huge area of need really and and certainly an area that needs a lot of focus and support. Mm. I know one of your campaigns is to get more young people into the care sector as a career and to Mm. stay there Um, and, and you talk about the attractions of the flexibility of social care actually compared to the health system which is a bit more sort of linear and structured and Whereas, you know, you say there are great rewards to be had for those who enter social care. You know, enthusiasm and imagination and innovation are sort of rewarded in social care. Definitely, Mm. definitely. It's interesting that. It's a thing that I say often, the single word that we have that's particularly, I mean, this is fighting talk perhaps to NHS protagonists, but, you know, having worked in the NHS in clinical and managerial and policy shaping and influencing commissioning roles and so on, I recognise that the word fun is almost actively discouraged in the busy, frantic world of NHS, clinical, cut and thrust, busy acute wards. You're not really expected to be having fun. But in care homes, it's the most important characteristic for me. And hence the principle about fun guarding, probably for me, more important than safeguarding. And I've said in my talk that I did a couple of years ago and regularly repeated since is that actually we like a bit of danger in our care homes. We like a bit of thrill. We don't want to be sitting around all day being sort of calm and relaxed. It's whilst it's useful and it's perfectly important for people, I think also having a bit of a buzz and a thrill mm. and doing doing exciting things is important. So I think that the principle about fun is at the heart of what we do and attracting people with what makes us different to the NHS is about fun there's a huge opportunity for career development for younger people. And I think we've done pretty well in my two care homes to attract companion support workers, which aren't activity workers. They have a different focus in being more creative, more imaginative, spending time with people, getting to know people, using that curiosity that you've mentioned yourself 
about how important it is. Every conversation we have with a person in a care home gives us the opportunity to learn something we didn't know already. And that's mm. pretty much baked in to our philosophy and our ethos in my care homes. And I believe that people understand how valuable that is and how much we learn every time we're with a person. And it's really, really important. I promise you, I'm, I'm not making it up. It's no, really I, know, I, I totally our, agree. It's, 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 it's it a is. part of our daily life, it really is. Mm, that sort of runs through everything that I write about, really. It's interesting when you said, you know, there's a very good career structure because, I mean, obviously yeah. so often the criticism is from people within the care sector that there isn't a good career structure. Yeah, I'm surprised that people feel that, you know. It does surprise me because actually if you, for example, in my care homes, virtually everybody has an area of special interest. We describe a champion. So people have a slightly enhanced pay. They improve their pay structure by taking on an area of special interest, for example, well-being or oral health or foot care. Or, or it can be a range of things. Respiratory health has been a really popular one. And skin care. So, you, you know, pain management. There are lots and lots of areas because, like you said, we touch every base. If you have a special interest in any area of care, you can specialise in that even further. And developing a kind of portfolio of expertise and very easily if you have initiative and enthusiasm and if you are energetic and can network and can build up a kind of an expert confidence you can very quickly aspire to um, all sorts of roles within residential care and beyond because we have a career structure that does give people team leader roles we have seniors of course we have deputy managers we have managers and we have people that can subspecialise into other areas too. So it is a land of opportunity. The NHS, and as an ex-nurse, you know, you get very pigeonholed and mm. your career structure often is waiting for, forgive the expression, but kind of dead men's shoes really mm. for, for any career progression. And I'm afraid it surprises me to think that, you know, social care and care homework has got limited sort of opportunity. I think it has maximum opportunity, infinite really. Mm. As, as we're talking about sort of the NHS and social care, not wanting to uh, put them in competition with each other or anything, but as we're talking about the two, because you, you know, as I say, you've got this sort of slightly, slightly unusual position of having been in both, and especially the way you've travelled from the NHS to social care. Can mm. you just sketch in pretty quickly, but just to give everybody listening an idea of of what some of your NHS sort of leadership roles were you, you you mentioned there one or two of them but can you just sketch it out so we know what we're yes, talking well, about yes well i worked at two health authorities in my time i was a clinical mental health nurse up until the late mid to late 90s i've maintained a continuing involvement with mental health work as my clinical kind of specialty i'm still involved with the mental health nurse association for example and i still get involved in other aspects of mental health care but i've certainly diversified when primary care trusts were being instigated at the end of the 90s and i became a commissioner working in bath working in bath and northeast somerset and i took on areas around health inequalities and i uh, did some work with learned disabilities and i did some work in other areas too then i worked at somerset health authority as a specialist commissioner and also had an involvement with some of the acute services then so i worked at musgrove park hospital for a while there and also in yeovil before moving to Devon, right through the noughties and into the teens, doing commissioning across a whole spread of areas. I was the cardiac commissioner, doing tertiary commissioning, involving lots of cardiac surgeries and so on. Um, ambulance services, I took a role with ambulance service commissioning for a time. And then my last but one job in the NHS was end-of-life programme lead for three years mm. in Devon. So had a huge involvement with working with um, end-of-life care and uh, local hospice and palliative care services. And then my last job in the NHS was, again, working for a foundation trust where I was responsible for income generation for a foundation trust. And since which time, I've also worked at Southwest Academic Health Science Network, which is another 
NHS role that I had up until this last year. So I've had sort of fingers in different pies and I've maintained an, an interest and a connection. And I'm now an, an elected member representing care homes, in fact, and social care, the integrated care system. I was going to ask Devon. you about that because obviously that would seem to be your natural fit. Yeah, it's been brilliant. I mean, again, I do apologise for name dropping. I'm a notorious name dropper, but working with Dame Susie Leather, who's the independent chair for Devon, has been fantastic. You know, she's such an inspiration, which is another important word in my repertoire, really, about finding inspiration and associating with it, you know, people that can lead. You know, I'm always keen to be as much of a follower as I am a leader, but certainly working in the integrated care system in Devon, and being, I believe, one of the only care home representative voices at that level is an opportunity to sort of make sure that our expertise and our capability and the contribution we can make to genuine integration across the health and care system is actually heard. And we are part of what needs to be a change in gear and a change in direction about how systems work better together. Because another core to our work is keeping people out of hospital, especially mm-hmm people living in a care home and especially Mm. people living with dementia you Mm. know we don't want avoidable hospital admissions and we would regard a person with dementia being admitted to hospital as what i would regard as a never event really we Mm -hmm. we just know that hospital care for someone living with dementia and frailty is a very very dangerous and damaging Mm, thing to happen for Mm. them to bring it right sort of up to date though now and make it more Mm. you know more topical you know when we were talking before today I was struck, you know, this is a very personal sort of story and it will be being replicated, you know, sadly across the country. This terribly grim experience when you got COVID in a care home and what that does, you know, and Mm. how it affects everybody involved. Just just sort of flesh that out a bit for us. Yes, I I think, you know, it's been really important for us, the learning and the experience. Mm, We spent the best part of 11 months really being well defended, very hypervigilant. We were very, very strongly resisting the virus. And then, as you said, our defences were breached at Pottles Court early in the new year. This was almost immediately, within a few days, in fact, of having been celebrated, nationally celebrated as one of the first care homes, certainly, if not the first care home, but one of the first of our sizes to be having everyone vaccinated at the end of December. But anyway, we were very excited. We were celebrating possibly prematurely, but our defences were breached early in the new year. And what was very telling and very important to share, really, was that we felt that after the five days, five, six days, which evidence generally suggests after exposure to the virus, you would expect symptoms. We didn't see any of that. We had our staff that were beginning to test positive themselves. And many of them then had to isolate, which was one of the other difficult issues. I think care homes, when staff are tested and tested positive, and as you know, we test PCR tests, that's the laboratory testing. We have that Mm. every week. I had Mm. my test result yesterday. So I've been negative literally throughout the process, having weekly tests and our LFD tests, which are the rapid testing Mm. that we also are doing. Again, I've tested negative every time. So I've been very fortunate, but I am virtually the only member of staff that that's Mm. been the case for. And I've been very, very hands-on during the period that we were dealing with the virus, because what happened after week two to three, we had residents who were isolating, as you rightly said in your introduction, for 14 days, which in itself was very, very tough for them and very Mm. hard for us. Mm. Most of our core staff during that time were isolating and we were relying on borrowed staff 
and myself and my wife. And we were working really hard to keep everybody strong and keep everybody safe, keep our confidence levels up. And leading by example, we took that to a different level in Venice because, you know, we were, I was working shifts and we were dealing with some very difficult issues for people that were isolating predominantly, who were becoming very fed up with it and becoming very withdrawn. And some mm. people were getting kind of restless and very agitated. And then going into week three, that's when we saw some of our residents, as you said, the oldest and the most frail, who were beginning to exhibit much more kind of florid, much more distinct symptoms of agitation. And that's when we reached what felt like a bit of a cliff edge for some of them. And we did lose a number, a small number, as, as you said. So it was very tough. And there were there are lots of lessons. I think the, the key lesson was about how important working in partnership is with our NHS colleagues. And I think that was really, really key. Mm. Maintaining confidence for us was also crucial. And being positive as best we were able to be. The isolation was desperate. Mm. And our staff, our core staff that knew our residents best, them being missing mm-hmm. was also very tough. So it was a combination of all those factors that really tested us out and, and mm. caused an, an awful lot of difficulty, really. And how many of those, how many of the, how many of the residents had dementia? Oh, Portals Court specialises in dementia care. So various advanced and progressed kind of dementia for the majority of our residents, really. Mm. So pretty much everybody... Mm you know, wasn't aware of what was going on. They, they struggled to understand some of the implications mm. and consequences. So it was very tough. And obviously one of the hardest parts was how the communications with families and the involvement mm. of families. Mm. Again, I'm so grateful and so gratified and vindicated in many ways by how supportive our families were. And of course, some of them were visiting because we felt that people were close to the end of their lives. But we were just heavily and massively supported by families and the local community because, you know, we were very transparent in saying that we were with the virus and we were fighting the battle with them. And I think we just had a massive amount of outpouring of love and, and morale boosting cards and messages and, 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 and good That's quite interesting, George, because I know you took a sort of no blame, no shame approach. And you and I talked about the fact that in a way it's very important to be open. I mean, as so often yes. is with, you know, difficult situations, whether we're talking about politics or sort of in yes. work situations or possibly in life, you know, if something is, is hard and challenging, it's better to be honest about that rather than try and cover it up. And I suppose perhaps that helped you then at that point? I think it did, really. I mean, we are nervous about adverse media attention. I think mm. that, that, that we notoriously know that care homes tend to get the headlines that care homes usually attract, the fairly negative ones. And um, we've seen the headlines. And some of my colleagues and some of friends across the country in care homes have actually, you know, have had their stories told in such a way as it feels a little bit sort of accusatory. Mm. And I think there was a kind of sense of we want to let people know that actually we did really well we maintained our courage we maintained our confidence we maintained the support and the people that we lost you know they were frail they were reaching the end of their lives ordinarily and I think what we believe is and what I know to be the case is that those that we lost COVID virus was a contributory factor, a significant contributory factor for people that had long, full and much loved lives. And I think that's a really important thing to say that people that we look after have a huge amount of affection and contact with our staff. And obviously, during this last year, have had much less satisfactory contact with their families. There's no denying that. But I know that I would say on behalf of all care homes, really, that we are doing and have done our very, very best to maintain that love and affection. And it's such a core characteristic to good care home life 
and I don't shy away from using the word love. I think it's been a very powerful emotional time for us and I think the mm. contact and support we've had with our residents has been absolutely based on that mm. but certainly it was a very difficult time and I think we're just so relieved that we're out the other side now you know we're returned when we I, I keep stopping myself saying we're returning to how things were mm. we will never go back to how things were we need to go forward and make sure that things are stronger and better and that's our another part of our raison d'etre in terms of consequences of this period of time. Mm. What do you think will happen going forward you know with the the learnings that are you know across across the country with care homes because there have been some shocking stories there have, um, there have. you know about the way at the beginning of the pandemic particularly i'm absolutely determined to do what i do throughout which is make a lot of positive noise about the elevation of social care but the elevation of care home status to it both inspire others to join us everybody should befriend their local care home has been something i've been saying for years mm. get to know that your care home make sure it's a kind of place that you want to move into when the time is right for you but also to reassure people who need a care home now and who may be av- avoiding it because they've got lots of possibly negative views mm. about care home life mm. but actually reassure people that both live in a care home still or currently and people that need to live in one at some point soon you know so the inspiration and the reassurance is a really key thing and I'd rather like to feel that the recognition and the inclusion that we see now for care homes being regarded as being experts being regarded as being part of the front line we're no longer the afterthought in many people's eyes I'm pleased to be able to report and I think I do get invited to talk quite a lot about care home life and extol the enthusiasm and the genuine feeling about how much excitement there is in care homes and how much what great times we have we're just full of ideas and Mm. I think that's one of the other really important things about making sure that everyday life has got something going on and I really believe that um, the care home world in terms of the legacy you know we talk about reputation management and legacy planning you know Mm. the, the, the legacy for all of this, what lingers and what lives on after this virus, after this terrible pandemic and those that have been through an outbreak has got to be about stronger, better, you know, more connected and actually sharing better to learn better. And I know that's the other thing. And and critically, using people that are living, walking the walk. And I know that when we hear about care homes being consulted and and it's often people the executive level of people that really rarely spend time with residents and rarely chat to a resident in a care home and I just think it is so so important and one of the other things that I'm talking to Susie Leather about is is about making sure that anybody that earns more than £50,000 in the system at least half a day a month spends a bit of time on the front line ideally in a care home that would be my bias but I do think some of the executive leads some of the people that spend a lot of their day like I used to do Mm. In meetings and dealing, writing mm. reports and having these really important conversations, but they actually see what it's like on the front mm. line. And I think it's so important that the credibility factor is embedded in the minds and the, in the behaviours of the people that are making decisions at various levels in our systems. So I'm really determined to see that that's another one of the legacy points that lives on and develops into the future for us beyond the pandemic. Another thing, and this is quite a sort of thorny issue really, I saw that you had a a tweet recently because you are quite active on Twitter. You said a quick end of week reach out question, interviewing Mm. for fab, keen, kind, curious team player, reliable staff right now, but adding, 
Hashtag pro-vaccine to my essential yes. criteria for our care homes. Two things, really. What views did you elicit from your tweet? And what are your views on that as somebody with these two care homes? Who's had the pandemic, by the way. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, I've had both Pfizer vaccinations myself. I feel that I have just said, look, this is a really important thing to do. Don't prevaricate. It's the right thing to do. It's an important thing to do. And if you work in care, it's important that you get the vaccine. And people are vaccine hesitant. You know, we hear that expression and we know that's the case. And some people have maybe legitimate concerns and reasons. And I think there is a balance to be struck about having an understanding and applying some empathy with people who are hesitant, but also recognising that this is such an important thing. And if you've lived through an outbreak like we've done, Mm. we cannot afford to take any chances. And that's my position. So to answer your question, I got quite a few positive responses. In fact, the majority of positive responses, sympathetic. I know Care UK, I believe, other the bigger corporate organisations that run care homes are actually seeing this as a a prerequisite for appointments. Mm. And I'm pretty much leaning in that direction too. So I've appointed, we've just got two new members of staff starting over the the coming days. Mm. One of my key interview questions was, are you vaccine sceptic or are you a vaccine protagonist? Are you keen? And both, thankfully, were keen to have the vaccination and I'm Mm. taking them on their word. So I'm really pleased to report that there are only a handful of staff now that remain uncertain and I'm saying that because I think they are uncertain and I think they will recognize the importance of having the vaccination to make both them and our residents safe because I think there is a real strong science and strong evidence that underpins that but it it is difficult and there are sort of legal discussions about is this a discriminatory step and you know are we allowed to restrict people's employment and what about staff that are already employed and are they at risk of losing their jobs I know that Robert Buckland one of the ministers Mm. was interviewed on by Nick Robinson I think Mm. or maybe just Webb recently and talked about that there is a strong case that you know vaccinations should become compulsory for care mm, staff, mm. people working with vulnerable people. And I have a lot of sympathy with that, but I'm sort of slightly hesitating to say that we're being absolutely black and white about it. We just want to encourage people with the right kind of information and the right kind of advice and evidence that actually being vaccinated, for all of us, in fact, is the right thing to happen. Mm. So, you know, it's controversial. There is sensitivity. What are the I, reservations as a matter of interest of the people well, the that reservations have reservations? Pe- largely, it's people that are concerned about the long-term consequences of the vaccine, you know, certainly the efficacy and the impact and people that are, for example, considering having children at some stage. There seems to be some anxiety that that might cause problems in terms of their future probability of starting a family, which I have to say, I'm not convinced that there's any evidence to support that. But of course, these are new vaccines. Whilst we know that there's been research and people have been developing this type of vaccination for SARS-orientated virus over Mm. many, many years, Mm. I think there is a sort of feeling that what we don't know, you know, causes people to be rather apprehensive. And I think most of what are causing people anxiety is what's been promoted on social media. And then there's a kind of lot of fake news from the anti-vax lobbyists who equally have got curious ideas about all sorts of things. And I suppose if I'm really honest, a vaccine sceptic person make me wonder about what else are they sceptical about? Do they dismiss the idea of social distancing? Do they believe that the virus is a hoax? You know, it's just something about, you know, how well-informed people are and how much people trust and believe in accurate information rather Mm. than what they read on, Mm. you know, social media. So it is a really tricky one. And I'm very open minded. I think it subscribes to my sense about we need to be receptive and reflective about our work. 
you know, and we need to listen. We need to be open to other ideas. But at the end of the day, as a leader, we have to take a stand. And I'm often saying as a leader, you know, mm. we, it's not a popularity contest. Sometimes we have to make tough decisions. Mm. And sometimes mm. we have to stand strong about issues that are so important and haven't been through the mm. outbreak as, as mm. we did. We cannot afford to have that ever happen to us again. We've got to do everything and more that we can do to resist any further breach of our defences that caused such kind of upset and suffering for our residents. Mm. And vaccinations, I think, is part of that. Because mm, I suppose if you're going to play devil advocate and, and take a stance, then if somebody's going into care work and it's quite clear that the vaccine doesn't only sort of protect you, it protects the people around you, that's quite difficult, isn't it, if you haven't got the vaccine? It's true. And you're it's coming true. into it's... a place that is, by definition, full of vulnerable people. Absolutely. Older, and it affects, you know, we now know for sure that it affects older people generally. Yes. Of course, there are outliers. There are the, the exceptions where young people have had it very severely, but it tends mm. to be very much the older people. Yes, indeed. I think we're not near the end of this. But I got invited by Nikki Kanani, who's the director at the NHS England for Primary Care, to do a piece with uh, Jonathan Van Tam, Professor Van Tam. And um, we were talking about this very point about what's the efficacy, what's the evidence, what's the purpose. And I think, you know, mm. we know that we have to trust and believe in, I believe we have to trust and believe in the people that are studying this and are the voice of the science. And I do. It is a leap of faith, you could argue. Yes, we could all hesitate. But if we did, I think more people would die and more people would suffer. And I think that's where I yes, am with this. Yes, you and I this. talked about trust, didn't we? And how important that is in situations like that. And there have been, you know, incidents along the way that have eroded people's trust in those that we think yes. we can look to for, you know, leading the country and uh, without sort of going into... <laughs> into it too much but certainly <laughs> there have name been. names <laughs> yeah yeah I, I suppose we're in an unprecedented pandemic situation but I think trust you know is very important whenever you place your loved ones into the care of somebody else isn't it historically we've looked after granny or somebody within our own homes but more and more in the mm. last few decades you know I, I, I myself have written about this how we do tend to to put it very crudely and bluntly not very nicely outsource the care of our elderly and then we don't mm. actually champion the very carers who are looking after our vulnerable loved ones and we don't well, pay again, them enough and yes i mean that's true i mean we've heard that the nhs are looking at a one percent pay rise aren't they and i think everyone's up in arms about that and i can understand why they would be but of course you know in terms of social care because it's not part of a public service at the moment that's left to individual organisations to organise and determine their own sort of pay scales, their own pay rates. And I think that we've seen in Scotland and in Wales, I believe, I think Ireland, you know, sort of £500 bonus has been paid directly to care staff. And of course, you know, we do our very, very best to pay people as much as feels sustainable and viable. But of course, I'm regularly admitting we do not pay, I do not pay our staff anything near what they deserve. And it's just because the system, you know, if you look at the overall, which at risk of getting sort of political about this, if you look at budget just simply budget considerations alone the nhs budget is something like six seven times more than adult social care budgets i mean social care budget if you're generous you can count it and get to about 22 billion pounds but the nhs budget is well in excess of 140 billion and we have more beds in social care we have more staff in social care we have more vacancies in social care and we get much less profile much less attention and therefore i think much less support and in many ways much more 
criticism. It's a really difficult issue. And I know my friends and colleagues in, at the King's Fund and others, Simon Boshry, for example, and Richard Humphreys, and many, many others speak very strongly. And we can only hope that the promises that have been made about fixing social care will bear fruit and will come to fruition soon. We can't afford to carry on looking the other way and allow more and more care homes and more and more social care suffering amongst people that need support mm. and care. I think most. it's my particular sort of subject, as it were, from a personal point of view. You know, dementia is really sort of powerful in that debate because, of course, mm. with the numbers of people... I know in real terms, actually, the numbers of people with dementia, it isn't going up, but because of the demographics, because we're all living mm. so much longer, the numbers are going up considerably. Mm. And with that... And because dementia comes under social care, this is one of the great iniquities. Um, mm. I've been talking to people for, for this series that I'm doing now, you know, and it really is shocking the way that people with yeah. dementia have to end up paying for their own care. It's just by chance they got dementia, not yes. another condition. Mm. I, I no, hate sort of comparing conditions, whether it be cancer or heart disease or whatever. But, mm. you know, my mum, your mum, whoever it might be, you get dementia and then you end up paying. My mum ended up paying over £100,000 for her care. Yeah. Um, no, it's so difficult. Because, because it's, it's so not under difficult. the NHS free at the point of delivery. So I think that that will have to propel more debate into this. Mm. Um, and it is sad that it was all those years ago in 2011, 12, that Andrew Dillnot, you know, did yes. his report and said, actually, we've got to try and, you know, yes. cap the amount that people have to pay yes. on their Absolutely. social care because you do get this catastrophic graph what he called yes. the car crash graph of some people paying over £100,000. It's a small amount of people, but they do it because you live for a long time with dementia. That's right. Um, it's a long-term condition. It's a whole system disease, and it affects every aspect of a person. I mean, people tend to associate dementia, as you will know, with the classic issues around confusion and memory loss and certain aspects of people's behaviour that change. But it affects every part of a person's life um, both physically emotionally spiritually Mm -hmm. mentally Mm -hmm. in every way you know this from personal experience and I do too so we we know about the condition we know how it affects and I know that many people say this and I say this too that once you've met one person with dementia you've met one person with dementia everybody's Mm. characteristics are different Mm. and of course yes you're right there's something about grasping the nettle amongst the politicians and the people that determine plans and futures and and I'm afraid to say that the Dillnut report was kicked into the long grass and the can kick down the road and all these different metaphors that have often been used but we've had promise after promise to fix it and to deal with this and I think we really need to take some urgent action and we need to be sensible we need to recognize the consequences of change and we need to recognize the need for investment and obviously right now with the national debt that we've seen that it's very difficult for the government to commit to anything that's going to really properly address the issues in relation to long-term care needs for people with frailty and dementia. And I tend to think that rarely will you come across a person living with dementia that doesn't have some form of other long-term illness too. So they don't stand alone even in that. Mm. And I think that the longer we put off, the more neglect, the more distress, the more Mm. sadness and suffering there will Mm. be. Mm. And we have to stop people being admitted to hospital because we see a pattern where a person with frailty and dementia will be supposedly looked after in their own home. And I don't, again, I don't want to criticise home care. I think they do their very, very best, but equally are in as much of a predicament as residential care in terms of social care capability. And uh, people will then ultimately have avoidable hospital admissions. Often the pattern that we see is somebody having a serious fall, Mm -hmm. going into hospital, staying in hospital too long, 
not doing well whilst they're there, mm, especially mm. a person in their late 80s and often in their, into their 90s, in hospital is just a desperately, desperately mm, difficult mm, and mm. unfriendly place for them, a dangerous mm. place for them. And if they're lucky, many will eventually get the opportunity to move into a, a homely home for life and have a great time. But sadly, most people don't. A lot of people will be sent back home much weaker, much less able than mm. they were prior mm. to their hospital admission, and they will struggle Mm. even more mm. and the family pressure and worry and burden and so on mm. that goes with that is I think absolutely indefensible mm. but I think that with power comes responsibility and I think that's where we have to hope that there will be some insight from the people that can make a difference to this and we we look desperately to Helen Watley and obviously Matt Hancock and others mm. to include us in the conversation we mm. we don't want to beat our fists on the desk we just want to accept that there is some need you know a hospital bed day an occupied hospital bed day costs mm, considerably mm, more mm. than a day in a care home mm, absolutely and yet we seem to be unable to recognize that an old person in hospital a place that's entirely alien to them mm. is somehow more defensible or more excusable than having sustainable support mm. in good care homes Mm. I think now's a, a good time to sort of do a shout out for the Admiral nurses, actually, which I yes. always try and do whenever I can, you know, these specialist dementia nurses, who are, the numbers are growing, largely because they have evaluated now. And of course, they do decrease the numbers of these acute hospital admissions, because they can keep a person at home, or if they visit a care home, you know, within the care home, rather than having to have this hospital admission, which is any of us who, who sort of have, have dealt with it personally know is probably the worst place in the world for somebody mm. with dementia to be. So, you know, and then it adds up financially, because as you rightly say, the hospital bed is a very expensive bed. So let's hope yes. anyway, that when the dust settles, <laughs> if that's the right thing to, to say on, on this awful, mm. awful pandemic, that our our great politicians will sort of, you know, seize the, the nettle on this and realise yes. how very important social care is to yes. the NHS and social care, you know, that it is integrated. I mean, it's reminded me a little that, you know, when I talk about dementia, I talk about, I know that there's all sorts of imagery when, that people use, and I, and I get very cross about it, if I'm honest, because I, I think Christopher Eccleston uses an orange, if you can remember the, the imagery of the orange, that, one, that, yeah. he, that he holds the orange and he says, this is dementia, and it, it gradually the orange mm, degenerates mm, and it mm. turns into a husk. And then there's another image that's often re promoted about the tree that has these marvellous leaves, and then the autumn comes, and then eventually the tree is stripped of any... And I don't see dementia like that whatsoever. I think of, if anything, the image that I tend to describe and share with my staff and others is that it's a kind of fog. And sometimes it does envelop a person. But that, like any kind of fog, there are periods of time that the fog clears and the person is still there. They've always been there. They're still there. They may be struggling to be seen and found the hard-to-reach principle. But we find moments of lucidity and moments of clarity for people, mm. even with the most advanced kind of features mm. and symptoms mm. of the condition. Mm. So I kind of I do feel that the belief about what dementia is is really important that we maintain some positivity and going back to my the happiness mantra as I describe it those four characteristics you know having things to look forward to reflecting on past life with affection of achievements and things that we're proud of and people we've known and so on and that that thing about affection 
as well. And then, of course, doing useful, meaningful things. That feels really important. And I can promise you there are examples every day, every day that I'm at Portals Court and Summer Court, although I don't go to Summer Court these days because I'm focusing particularly on Portals Court, as we're encouraged to do. You know, we mustn't visit lots of care homes. But I, I see every day where people want to do useful things. They want to be helpful. We polish mm. brasses at regular intervals. Mm. We, those that can do knitting, we, we have make a fuss about all sorts of things that make people feel polishing shoes, doing, doing mm. ordinary everyday mm. things. Mm-hmm. And people want to help other people. I often see people holding hands as they're walking down the corridor, each of them thinking that they're guiding and helping the other person. Mm. And it's mm. just lovely mm. to see that kind of thing. That doesn't go away yes. for people with dementia. And we tend to depersonalize and dehumanize people, thinking, yes. well, they're no longer able, there's no point in talking to them because they're not going to respond. Or, well, no, that's exactly why. I took a picture of a motorbike into a Yesterday, I think I did a tweet about it. We were talking about motorbikes, and I've got motorbikes still, so I'm bombing about on motorbikes. And this chap was talking about he's always wanted a Vincent Black Shadow. So mm. I just got a picture of the internet and took it in. We had such a great conversation about this motorbike that mm. he's always loved. Mm. If he was mm. going to buy one now, he'd, he'd probably spend best part of a million pounds on one. I checked it out <laughs> for him. And I thought, he's going to start saving up. But we just had a real laugh about this, and it was mm. really important. And many people would think, well, you know, we don't go back to thing we've talked about importance of time making the time is desperately mm. desperately mm. important just to sit and, and I think, talk to people mm. exactly and it just it comes back a little bit to culture mm. it certainly comes back to leadership but ultimately it does come back to status which tracks back to the politics of it all so going right back to what we were saying we need inclusion we need elevation we need investment i can't pretend that that's not important because it clearly is and i'm i'm not going to say that money is the only answer it really really isn't but actually the more that we just make do and mend and put up with then the worst things are and we do have to make positive noise we don't want to whinge and moan and i'm I'm a can-do sort of guy rather than a yes but sort Mm. of fellow so i'm Mm. very determined to speak strongly and confidently about what we do and want to invite people to come and have a look Mm. come and meet us and i'm gonna you know i'm just reaching for lucy pollock's book um, which mm. I'd seriously recommend. She's a geriatrician at Musgrove Park Hospital. She's just published a book called The Book About Getting Older for People Who Don't Want to Talk About It. Mm. And it's just a fabulous read. And I'm so privileged that she's included a chapter that mentions me quite a bit, which is very nice. So I'm doing a bit of promoting of her book and of me by mentioning it to you, Pippa. But again, there are so <laughs> many stop people... Stop you talking soon. <laughs> I'm so sorry. There are so many people that are really changing the narrative mm, that are speaking mm, differently mm. about not just dementia but old speaking age. differently about mm. old age and mm, speaking and different about, differently mm. about exactly mm. the mm. the journey mm. that we're all on mm. and we've got to be stronger mm. and we've got to influence better i suppose really mm. anyway i'm sorry I did, no no, no i, 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 t- I totally agree with you actually george on the um, i mean I, i've lost count of the number of people who in different ways do what you say about you know that i remember one of the first people i ever met when i got into the dementia world was Rachel Mortimer, and she set up a social enterprise called Engage and Create, and that's exactly what it did, you know. She sat down with her iPad and showed somebody who hadn't spoken for weeks, an old lady with dementia, she showed her a picture, and mm. it, it brought the old lady to life, just in the same way that music, of course, does. does you think somebody's lost and they come back. And also the way that I've got a lovely guest who I've already interviewed called Keggy Carew, who wrote the Costa book winner Dadland about her dad with dementia, who right. her dad always wanted. It was quite difficult for Keggy because she was living with him and he just wanted jobs, jobs. Give me a job, give me a job, which is exactly <laughs> what you were saying. And he just wanted a job Excellent. to do. So anyway, thank you very much indeed. That was very interesting. I think I hope other people agree our, our chat today, George. 
Well, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's Thank you for sparing talk. the time. Thank you so much. Well, well, keep tweeting and keep in touch and we'll talk again, I'm sure. And one of these days we may meet for a cup of we tea. We may even meet. Which would yeah, be lovely. That old-fashioned <laughs> thing of actually meeting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those were the days. <laughs> Thanks, George. Thanks a lot, Pippa. Bye-bye. You can hear the enthusiasm, energy and fun in George Coxon's voice as he talks about what he does. He's a man with a vision, who also knows all about the gritty day-to-day reality of care homes, whose experience has shown him the importance of properly integrating health and social care, actually doing it, not just uttering the soundbite. I warm to anyone with a can-do attitude, and George certainly has that. What he also possesses, as do all my podcast guests, is curiosity about others. They're all people, people. Every conversation we have with a person in a care home is an opportunity to learn something new, says George. Of course it is. But how many of us remember that? Sally Knocker of Meaningful Care Matters, the first person I ever interviewed for Well I Know Now, is wonderfully and kindly inquisitive about others. And there are countless other guests I could mention. Care homes so often come in for a bad press. For many people, they're the last place on earth they want to end their lives. I well remember my mum years before she died, but when, looking back, dementia may well have been creeping up on her, giving me one of her looks. They were legendary, terrifying, and saying, you won't put me in a care home, will you? The pandemic and the scandal of how infected people were discharged from hospital willy-nilly into care homes is well known and hugely damaging to the sector, to those who work in it, but most of all, to those who live there and their families. George Coxon, gives the other side of the story, the positive case for really good care homes. And it's a story worth hearing. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast And then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.